Welcome back, everyone, to The Connection, a podcast of government market news. I'm your co-host, Marshall McCumber of ThinkP3 here in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Mary Scott Neighbors, President CEO of Strategic Partnerships in Austin, Texas. Mary, how are you? Good morning, Marshall. You know, Mary, we are once again, the fascinating conversations we're having here, equity as it relates to public infrastructure. And a specialist and expert and a friend of mine joining us today, Victoria Johnson, who's the Global Equity Director for HDR, is going to help walk us through this. Victoria, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Marshall and Mary. Really excited to be with you today and uh, have a conversation about this important topic. Thanks, Victoria, for being here. So let's get right into this. Let's start with some basic definitions for many of our contractors who might be listening, or maybe perhaps some of our public officials too. For public infrastructure, Victoria, what does equity mean? Sure. So with public infrastructure, what we're referring to when we talk about equity is essentially the distribution of burdens and benefits across people, places, and policies. So essentially we know throughout the United States of America, whether it's our roads, bridges, uh, transit systems, water infrastructure, uh, our power lines, they are distributed right throughout our country, whether they're in urban centers, more remote areas. And there's also a mix of, um, again, the presence of our public infrastructure for more affluent communities, as well as more low-income communities. So when we're talking about equity in public infrastructure, we're essentially talking about how are the benefits and burdens of that infrastructure, whether it's proximity, living adjacent to a wastewater treatment plant, living adjacent to a highway or an interstate or an airport, how are we essentially distributing the benefits of that infrastructure, the capital planning, uh, the revenue essentially generated from the operations and maintenance of public infrastructure, as well as, again, the environmental burdens, right, um, of, of the infrastructure. And a lot of that is rooted in race, income, and geography in terms of your zip code, um, which also has some, some economic impacts, there are economic factors. So again, when we're talking about public infrastructure and equity, we're talking about essentially the distribution of burdens and benefits across people, places, and policy. Now, I know Mary wants, has a question. She wants to jump in, but I've got to ask one more basic definition question here. A lot of people think about equity, they think about money, finance, especially as we're talking about public-private partnership, investing into a project. Is there a connection between private equity, money equity, and the type of equity you're talking about? So there are synergies, um, but but quite frankly, we are uh, talking about uh, different areas. Essentially, we're talking about private equity with regards to finance, as well as equity, of course, with regards to public infrastructure. The synergies essentially really do speak to, again, as we're talking about managing our infrastructure across the U.S. that consider that there is considerable investment, right, in terms of capital and dollars. Um, so essentially, from a financial perspective, particularly in conjunction with equity, how are we ensuring uh, that essentially the investment, the financial investment that we're making in managing our infrastructure with, of course, the public sector uh, managing that in partnership with the private sector in terms of professional services and contractors and the like, how are we ensuring that those dollars are allocated equitably? 
again, whether it's looking at which communities get um, necessary funding and investment for asset management um, and the like versus maybe low income communities that which tend to be more black and brown, don't get the same level of investment. So again, the flow of where those dollars go, Marshall, as well as um, even beyond uh, the actual projects itself in terms of the entities, the private sector entities, whether they're contractors, professional services firms, minority women-owned businesses, veteran entities and the like, how are we also ensuring that those capital dollars that we invest in our infrastructure are also funneled into local small uh, own businesses essentially that tend to be underrepresented in infrastructure, as well as jobs and opportunities for residents who live adjacent to those projects, live essentially in target zip codes that tend to experience more of the burdens. How are we ensuring the economic flow and access of those dollars essentially uh, to public infrastructure? So that's the financial synergy, if you will, of equity and finance when we're talking about public infrastructure. In many cases, talking about returns and outcomes, they are quite similar. Mary, I know you want to jump in here with some questions. Go ahead. Mostly, I just I want to talk about this because we've always had minority businesses, small businesses, veteran-owned, disabled uh, veteran certifications. And so that's not new. What is new is so many corporations have been encouraged to, to instigate diversity, equity, and inclusion policies and procedures. Many universities and colleges have professors who specialize there. And that has now become political. It's become, there's a resistance. Numerous states have issued proclamations saying decisions should not be made on these three categories. Decisions should just be made. It's confusing to public officials who are making decisions and it because there's federal mandates with this infrastructure money to make sure that it is equitable and that there is inclusion and there is diversity. And then it's really um, confusing to contractors when they go in to present themselves. Do they say we have all of this program? Do they say we will make sure in our solicitation proposals we will do this. It's just hard to know what to do. And we get called for advice from both sides all the time. And and I don't know, Victoria, that anyone can answer that question right now, because I know you're going to have a better answer than I have. Let me tell you all what I say to companies and to public officials who call us. Uh, the federal money that is coming in does have restrictions, mandates, so it has to be taken considerably into every every decision that's made. However, I think it's important for contractors who are going in to look at what's happening locally. What is happening in your state? Are there mandates? Is this a political issue? What's the community you're going to be serving? So with that, with that very general answer that we normally give, Victoria, do you have any more, I guess, specific advice you would give on this? Sure, sure. And, and great question, uh, Mary. As you as you said, there's certainly a, a variety of perspectives um, and opinions on this topic. 
And uh, we're certainly at, at different parts of our journey uh, when it comes to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and the role that it plays, particularly in infrastructure um, as the public and private sectors work together. Uh, there's three things that come top of mind um, that I would share, Mary. Uh, the first would be to really understand um, where the agency is, meet the agency where they are in terms of, I think we all mean well, in terms of just wanting to ensure that constituents and residents and, and taxpayers have what they need, regardless of where they are in our, our great country. Um, but it's important that depending on the agency, right, that you're talking to and working with, get an understanding of their perspective, their leadership, their general manager, the CEO, their, their commission. Um, most agencies have a strategic plan. Get an understanding of the agency's um, vision, their mission, their values. Um, every organization, be it an agency, be it a private sector contractor or a community-based organization has a culture. So one I would say get a true understanding of their priorities, their position, um, and their um, approach to these issues is one, because I think it's very important um, in terms of the private sector. You mentioned contractors, of course, meeting with um, public sector agencies to provide them with support to meet people where they are. And I know we talk a lot about uh, meeting folks where they are in, in terms of individual workforce, which is very important. But even in this case, to your point, as contractors are talking with agencies, meet the agency where they are in terms of getting an understanding of their perspectives, priorities, concerns um, when it comes to this topic. That's one. Two, I believe in leading with data. Um, lead with demographics. Every agency has a jurisdiction and a service area that they serve. And those are essentially the constituents that they are accountable to. So again, whether they're providing uh, transit services or water or whatever the uh, infrastructure a mode that they're managing, it's very important to understand the demographics of their service area. And that will really tell us everything that we need to know in terms of looking at the demographics, whether it's a mix of urban and more rural, uh, geographic areas, uh, seniors, uh, up to young people who are still in school, individuals who may be retired and still in the workforce, really understanding the demographics. And then within those different geographic demographics, understanding the environmental comp uh, the environmental impacts, if you will. Folks may be living adjacent to airports. They may be living adjacent to interstates and highways. Folks may be having some challenges with their water or, or water main breaks and things of that nature. So in looking at the, uh, the demographics and the data of, of what that's telling you about an agency service area, That'll help both the contractor and the public agency make informed decisions about where their priorities should be in terms of what are you hearing from your constituents at your community meetings about their concerns, their needs, their challenges? Is it jobs? Is it, again, are they uh, having, again, challenges with uh, potholes and, and things of that nature? Is it odor control because they're living adjacent to a a water or wastewater treatment plant? Is it noise and air quality because they're living um, in proximity to an airport? So really leading with data and understanding, again, what that data reveals. And from there, essentially, the third recommendation would be to utilize the information that you glean from that data. I also want to mention um, in that data kind of assessment, that local assessment, 
Also disparity studies. You mentioned that we certainly have had uh, programs for minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, uh, disadvantaged veterans, et cetera. But we do have a ways to go in maximizing those programs. So I also want to mention in that data approach, uh, disparity studies in terms of if we look at many of our cities and agencies, a lot of the goals, if you will, that we have in supplier diversity, if we look, a lot of them were not necessarily rooted in real data. So taking the time, there's several agencies and cities who are taking the time to do disparity studies to really make a real assessment of what is available in their essentially in their service area, who's available, who has the expertise, who has the um, the ability, if you will, in terms of the supplier community to help them, and then essentially making goals uh, based upon what that data revealed. So I'll stop there. Um, I know I mentioned the third, happy to, to share there, but I don't want to uh, belabor the point, but essentially I think if you lead with data, and understand what the community is is experiencing and what that agency um, is prioritizing um, as an organization, I think that's a great start to really get to the next step. Marshall, I'm going to give it back to you in just a half a second here because I know we've monopolized it and I want to get you in on this. But let me say one other thing. One other piece of advice that I normally give that I think is important for everybody who might be listening to this to know is that every city, county, state agency, even a university or a college or, or even special districts, they do have someone in that public entity who is responsible for small and minority business assistance. And so it's always possible to call that office and simply ask. Uh, many cities and counties give extra points on every solicitation if, if you have local subcontractors. So those are the types of things that you can ask that I think are really important. And then the last piece of advice I would give is this. Every public entity also has a public information officer. And, and you can simply call that person and say, I need help. I am someone who is about to bid on something in your in your area and you're going to be an important player and let me ask some questions. And there should be enough transparency for you to get answers. Marshall, back to you. Well, Victoria, I want to maybe summarize a little bit of what we've talked about here so far. And I want to see if, if I'm saying this correctly. When we talk about equity, we've got the role of the contractor, the small, medium, minority-owned, woman-owned, disadvantaged, veteran-owned contractor who is working with the government to achieve whatever particular contract or uh, solution that the, the government's contracting with. But I think we, and when equity is becoming a much larger discussion, if I'm hearing you, if, if, if I'm hearing you right, it's the firms working with government and in trying to increase the number of small disadvantaged minority owned women owned firms that are working with government. But it's the actual investments goes back to almost our equity conversation earlier, the, the, the finance, the funding itself, increasing the size and the range and scope and reach of those investments to reach the community itself, and then to actually talk to the people who are going to benefit from those investments. Do, do, do I get the reach there of our topic today? Yes, you're absolutely right, um, Marshall. Uh, we are really talking about developing multi-benefit solutions um, that benefit not only, again, the hard infrastructure 
um, that essentially that we, of course, are are committed to doing, but really looking at public agencies to serve as anchor institutions to essentially uh, address many of the needs and challenges of our service of, of the areas that they serve. Um, and we can do that through infrastructure in terms of unemployment, workforce. Uh, we know that we have a silver tsunami among us with baby boomers retiring significantly in the next several years. Institutional knowledge transfer to a younger, more diverse generation of infrastructure professionals, both on the public sector side as well as the private sector side. So essentially, Marshall, to your point, we're talking about comprehensive multi-benefit solutions um, that we can achieve that are more people-centered. We uh, There's a, a term uh, we like to refer to in terms of people-centered infrastructure, in terms of addressing the fact that as we address our roads, bridges, our water, and, and we work with uh, essentially our subject matter experts and our architects and designers and engineers to essentially uh, prioritize the technical expertise that's necessary, I think we've forgotten that we are doing this because people need these assets in order to live. Infrastructure um, touches every aspect of our life. We all need water. We all need a road to get to work or to walk our kids or walk our dogs. Um, so essentially, I think with the conversation that we're having, we're really um, centering people and understanding that through infrastructure, in addition to uh, addressing, again, the hard infrastructure we can also do a better job of ensuring that we're addressing the needs and challenges and barriers um, that many of our communities and our, our ratepayers have been facing. One more quick question, then I'll go back to Mary here. Uh, Victoria, you and I were both at the U.S. Conference of Mayors uh, winter meeting recently in D.C., and one of the messages I took from that, um, that gathering was the importance, and this is from the federal officials there, partnership, 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 collaboration with communities, when you are working to go after these federal grants that Mary was just talking about, infrastructure investment jobs, like BIL, IRA, CHIPS, it, you've got to work with the communities and build a group of applicants, almost a coalition. Is, is that what federal the federal government is looking for these days? And is that what contractors should think more about versus that just going it alone? Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Marshall. Uh, partnerships is critical in this work. And essentially, as we look to uh, do what I like to call really transition from transactional relationships with the public sector into more transformational relationships, fully encourage contractors, um, private sector firms, minority known businesses to uh, really approach the work through strategic partnerships. Uh, to your point, there are other um, adjacent partners as we work to build an ecosystem to essentially deliver um, projects and, and capital plans and capital, uh, pardon, yes, capital plans, forgive me, essentially uh, for an agency as you have other partners that we have at TAP. You have like community-based organizations. Every agency has a slew of community-based organizations that have relationships with their residents and who are who are uh, the vocal voices, if you will, of their concerns and their needs. So community-based organizations we can partner with. Also, you have philanthropic organizations we can partner with. As you know, through a lot of the federal um, funds that you reference, there's also philanthropic partners who are also offering grant opportunities and other funding to also fund uh, these efforts 
And there's also other community entities, our schools, our schools. Um, you have faith-based organizations like churches, or you have re-entry organizations that are focused on um, ensuring that uh, second-chance citizens have an opportunity to re-enter the workforce. You have entities that are also working with homelessness. I'm from Southern California, grew up in Orange County, and we know homelessness is certainly a priority for Mayor Bass, who was also with us there um, at the U.S. Conference of Mayors um, last week. Homelessness is a critical issue, as well as in Seattle and New York and other major cities um, throughout our country. So I say that to say we should certainly be leaning into strategic partnerships with a variety of entities, if you will, who can help us deliver projects and capital plans in a way that help us achieve these multi-benefit solutions. And I'll close by saying many communities have um, developed solutions that really just need to be scaled, Marshall. Uh, There's a term called co-designing in terms of as we serve as architects, designers, and engineers, we're we're partnering with uh, local uh, pardon me, communities who have solutions, if you will, and working with them to not only get the feedback, typically what we've done historically is we get feedback and it's much too late to react to the feedback or, or incorporate the feedback. So really including communities much earlier in the planning process and that project lifecycle and engaging them in co-designing a project or co-designing um, um, an approach and also leveraging their expertise that they have there in their community. And that's essentially that a comprehensive multi-benefit ecosystem that we can develop that will get us to the type of outcomes that we're talking about. Mary, strategic partnerships. Sounds familiar. Marshall, I know we are getting really close to closing time here. So, and maybe this is a good thing to leave with. Public officials all over the United States are submitting applications for all of this federal funding that we've been talking about. And between now and 2026, there's still trillions of dollars that will be flowing out, and most of that money will be going to the applicants of successful grant proposals that they send in. So what we've just talked about, my best advice would be this. If you are sending in a grant application, cover diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because the ones that we look at that are that are getting the big money all point out in that grant application, here's what it will do for this community. Here's what it will do for equity. Here's groups we're including, just like Victoria talked about. That is a key to success in getting that federal funding for these projects. So thanks so much, Victoria, for giving us a good overview there and And Marshall, I know with you in D.C., I know you hear and you see this all the time. So good to have this conversation. It is. It's an amazing time, a transformational time in public infrastructure. Incredibly exciting time. Victoria, any closing comments for us today? Yes. I would just like to thank you both, Mary and Marshall, uh, for having me. Uh, To your point, Marshall, we are in transformational times. Um, And as Mary shared, as uh, we continue to pursue federal funding, um, and grant support for these efforts. We have a great opportunity to essentially develop multi-benefit solutions to how we deliver projects and do so in a way that's people-centered, that's data-focused, and in a way that can really um, help us uh, develop outcomes that will benefit us now and for years to come. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to uh, contribute to this important chat. 
Thanks, Victoria. Appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Connection Day. We'll see you soon.